It's a brisk day in January of 2009, and some 70,000 football fans are all packed into New Orleans Superdome to watch the Saints play the Minnesota Vikings. The winner goes on to Super Bowl 44. It's the NFC Championship game. Now it's time to play football. The Saints were only one win away from going to the Super Bowl. But the Vikings were no joke. They had been playing well this season, especially their quarterback, Brett Favre, a future Hall of Famer at the end of his career. And today was no different. Favre throws a touchdown pass in the first quarter, putting the Vikings up 14-7. The air is tense with anticipation. As Favre lines up at the 40-yard line and gets ready to throw, two of the Saints linemen charge towards him. After Favre throws the ball, one of them takes aim at his chest, the other right below his knees. Favre goes down. The Saints are handed a 15-yard penalty. I think he's a little banged up off of that hit there to Bobby McCray. Been hit four times. It's third and seven. There's all kinds of rules about protecting quarterbacks. Like, you can't hit a quarterback on the kneecaps or below the knees, which these linemen just did. The 38-year-old Kurt Warner last week and they're trying to hit, hit high and hard on the 40-year-old Brett Favre here today. And a few plays later, he's hit again, hard. He's helped off the field. And there's another penalty on the Saints. After being looked at by medics, Favre limps his way back onto the field to keep playing. But the Saints' defense keep coming, hitting Favre with something known as a high-low hit a kind of hit that can seriously injure a player's knees. But it wasn't just Favre's knees that suffered. The Saints' safety hit him in the head late in the game, twice. Bobby McCray blows up wow. Favre at the top of your screen. It's going to be the theme for the day. They're going to yeah. hit him as much as they can. It's right there in the fiber of the game, the fabric of the game, is you want to just crush the enemy. and just stop them by any means necessary. That's Paul Banks, who runs the sports news website, thesportsbank.net. Like so many playoff games, each team is fighting to the finish. Favre threw an interception, and the game went into overtime. The Saints won the coin toss, marched down the field, and kicked the field goal. The final score is 31 to 28. Viking fans knew this might have been one of Favre's last chances to win a second Super Bowl ring. It was hard for them to watch. Now, to be clear, football is a violent game, but something here seemed off. The Saints defense had been playing in a way that seemed not only overly aggressive, but almost intentionally dangerous. Very, very possible that future generations are gonna look back at this and say, oh my God, like that's what they did. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the podcast where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this week's episode, Hitting Below the Knees, the scandal of Bounty Gate. When 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After the New Orleans Saints beat the Minnesota Vikings in the 2009 NFC Championship game, they advanced to the Super Bowl. This was their first time, and it was a source of immense pride for New Orleans, a city that was still recovering from one of the worst storms in United States history. Good evening from a battered and soaked city of New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina certainly arrived here with explosive power. In 2005, devastating rainfall from Hurricane Katrina sent most of the city of New Orleans underwater. The destruction of the hurricane displaced hundreds of thousands of people. Many took refuge in Louisiana's Superdome. Thousands of people lost their lives. But for the city whose common saying is, let the good times roll, they persevered. It was a long road to recovery. The Saints had to rebuild themselves too. They were considered one of the worst teams in the franchise. In 2005, they finished the season with a 3-13 and record. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Then, in 2006, they got a new coach, Sean Payton, former assistant head coach and passing game coordinator to the Dallas Cowboys. This was his first gig as a head coach. Between the state of the city and the team's bleak record, it was a daunting job to step into. But Sean was up to the task. That's one of the, the, the enticing things about the job. There's a passionate community here, a city that, that has gone through a lot. So you can uh, help with this rebuilding process. I think it makes you feel, feel pretty good inside when you go to bed at night. In that same year, Drew Brees, a former quarterback of the San Diego Chargers, arrived in the Big Easy, eager to play. Things started to turn around for the Saints. A year after Hurricane Katrina struck, the Superdome was restored and reopened. The Saints play on the same field where people once had taken shelter during the storm. Green Day and U2 performed The Saints Are Coming, and it was one hell of a homecoming. The Saints beat their biggest rival, the Atlanta Falcons, 23-3. It was a huge win, not just for the team, but for the city. The Saints became a symbol of hope in New Orleans post-Hurricane Katrina. This game ball is going to the city of New Orleans. That year, Sean Payton, the fresh-faced rookie head coach, won the NFL's Coach of the Year award. From that point, the team started to climb. They hired Greg Williams as their defensive coordinator. He'd been a former head coach of the Buffalo Bills and was known for his tough-nosed, hard-hitting mentality on the defensive side of the ball. Greg Williams, whose nickname is the Conductor of Aggression, and he lived up to that nickname and more. And he was a guy that was very rah-rah, very fiery, very loved to swear. He was just like the old expression, kicking ass and taking names. If you want to get a sense of who Greg Williams is, here's one of his pump-up speeches. You got to turn that motherfucker over, turn the coaches over, turn the spectators over, so get that motherfucker on the sideline. That's a great game. 
The defensive team spent hours poring over the opponent's tape. Williams' assistant coaches, including a guy named Mike Cirillo, would do the film breakdowns, pull together the scouting reports, and basically gather any information they could. Then Greg would use all of it to develop their strategy on the field. The Saints steadily worked their way up the ranks until they found themselves at the Super Bowl in 2010. They were playing against the Indianapolis Colts. It's safe to say that the Saints were the underdogs here, but it seemed like the entire nation was rooting for them. So happy to be here at Sun Life Stadium as the Saints, they began. And now they open up in their Super Bowl debut. They led the league this year, total offense, and there is Dwight Freeney coming out for the first snap. This is the highest scoring team in the league each of the last two years. The Saints were down entering the second half, but a bold onside kick in the third quarter will help propel them to win the Super Bowl. Sean Payton signed Drew Brees. He said, come down here. I will let you help me design this offense. I'd say it worked out pretty well in four years. They have been the sign of hope for the Saints. And I tell you, Mardi Gras is about to break out here in Miami. It was like a classic Hollywood comeback story. Here's quarterback Drew Brees in a press conference after their victory. Four years ago, whoever thought this would be happening? You know, when 85% of a city was underwater, all of its residents evacuated to places all over the country. Most people not knowing if New Orleans would ever come back or if the organization of the team would ever come back. We just all looked at one another and said, we're going to rebuild together. And this is the culmination of all that belief and that faith. Sean Payton was seen as a hero. And his record made him stand out from the pack. He was set to become a coach with a 152-89 to record, which is one of the best records in franchise history. He was the next new hot coach. And so that made him of note to the press and especially the media, I'm sure, in New Orleans. Sean Payton was the next new guy that was supposed to lead the change. And in this case, he actually did. Just days later after the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras took place in New Orleans and celebrations centered on the Saints' win. Black, gold, and white confetti, the team's colors, rained down on parade goers. A float carried Drew Brees dressed like a Greek god covered in gold as he threw a small football into the crowd. But under all those beads, behind the masks, beyond the glitter and confetti, something was amiss. The Saints' defense was brought into question and an anonymous email would reveal that something much bigger was happening. That's after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? 
Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. A few months after the Super Bowl, the Vikings accused the Saints of playing overly aggressive during the playoff game. Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre was hit several times in the face and had suffered a concussion. In total, the Vikings coach had counted 13 dangerous hits on Favre. It all seemed so targeted. They accused the Saints of placing bounties on Favre. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear bounty, I think of hostage movies where a family member disappears without a trace, or mobsters taking a hit out on another person. What the Vikings head coach was suggesting, well, it wasn't that far from my Hollywood version. Players would pitch in a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars. There was a pool and there was money for card offs in which you went after a player. And if you knocked him out of the game, you got paid a little bonus. Then there were so-called remember me hits where, OK, maybe you didn't knock the guy out, but you gave him such a hit that he would remember you because it was that strong. A knockout was the guy just didn't get carted off. He didn't come back. Bounties aren't a part of players' contracts, but they were more like an office pool that kept getting bigger. And this sort of thing wasn't unheard of. But what the Vikings were saying, though, was that they thought the Saints had started a pool to intentionally injure other players. And that was next level. I think it inspires the idea of all or nothing. It inspires the idea of competitiveness. It inspires... Um, us versus them. They are the enemy and we will do whatever it takes to stop them and we will do whatever it takes to win. Some players have described it as a point of pride when a bounty gets taken out on them. Sometimes it's one of those unspoken parts of the game. And look, there's a long tradition of people trying to bend the rules in football. It's gamesmanship. Teams have secretly videotaped other coaches at games to study their hand signals. Players have deflated balls to make them easier to grip. Uh, Brady, Belichick, you know who I'm talking about. But bounties are a whole other thing. The goal there is to injure another player, which, in a sport that we cheat listeners know from previous episodes, wink, wink, can cause brain damage. And that's pretty out of bounds. But still, bounty programs have existed and teams seem to accuse each other of it pretty regularly. 1989 Thanksgiving game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys known as the Bounty Bowl. It wasn't just that Buddy Ryan's Eagles put a bounty on Dallas Cowboys quarterback Troy Aikman. I mean, you're the quarterback. You sign up for that. But they also went after the kicker long after it was whistled dead. I remember watching football in the 80s, and it definitely felt like all of those players were trying to kill each other. But you fast forward to the 2000s and they've established rules to make the game safer and protect the players. Now, dangerous and illegal hits still happen in probably every game of professional football. And sure, Favre had been hit a lot. But in order for it to be against the rules, those hits had to be intentionally harmful. But that's not proof. You know, that's not proof that he did it on purpose. And I think it's the same with the bounty thing is can you prove as an outsider that that guy laid a hit on that quarterback intentionally trying to hurt them to collect that bounty or was it just the speed of the game and the way it naturally is played? 
the NFL was suspicious enough to open an investigation. NFL security is essentially the NFL's secret police force, literally comprised of former CIA agents, FBI agents, and local police. For the record, I had no clue that the NFL had their own secret service or CIA agents. So this security team often acts as the NFL's watchdog, and they aren't exactly some independent body. They answer to the league and its interests. And while they can't exactly go arrest anyone, they're heavily involved in league affairs. Basically watching everything that goes on in and around the league. And that even includes, you know, picking up drunk players after they've been out partying at night, you know, making sure that if there was a domestic problem that they keep it as under wraps as they possibly can. Investigators talk to coaches, agents, players, but no one seemed willing to say anything about a bounty system. That is, until the NFL got an anonymous email in November of 2011. The author of the email called the Saints a dirty organization. The email read, I was in there, in the cover-up meetings. I love the NFL and want to work there again. But I'm afraid if I tell the truth, I will never coach again in NFL. But I was fired for a situation the Saints encouraged. According to the whistleblower, it all started in pregame meetings during the 2009 playoffs. Now, remember, Sean Payton had put his new hotshot defensive coordinator, Greg Williams, in charge of bringing the swagger back to the defense. And Greg had a good idea on how he wanted to do it. Bounty Gate was about targeting specific players, star players, and going after their weakness, their Achilles heel. And it went on for years. Dozens of players pledged money each game to encourage their teammates to take out a specific opposing player. They made it into an entire science. The bounties became an integral part of the Saints' defensive strategy. They studied the injury reports. They studied the fitness reports because they wanted to get each player where he might be injured, where he might have been not 100% fit. And then, in 2011, a filmmaker making a documentary about a retired Saints player was sitting in a team meeting. It seemed like an ordinary meeting. Greg Williams was using a projector to talk about plays while the rest of the team sat casually and watched. But soon, Greg's tone started to change. We want him running sideways. We want his head sideways. Whoa. All right. Well, maybe he was talking to metaphors. But as Greg continued, what he was saying started to seem pretty literal. Kill the fucking head. Every single one of you, before you get off the pile, affect the head. Early, affect the head. Touch and hit the head. That sounded pretty clear. Then he started handing out cash to players for what Greg was calling whacks, or whack hits. Now this was starting to sound like the mob or something. The filmmaker scanned the room. Some of the players were smiling. Others were laughing. And a few of them told each other to give it back. The money to be put in a larger prize pot. Greg was telling his team to injure specific players on opposing teams, literally going for their head. 
and that he'd reward them for doing so. Greg Williams took it to a level that was so extreme where he would honestly tell his players, let's end this guy's career. At the time, the filmmaker wondered what he should do with the information he had. He'd caught something on tape that the Saints likely wouldn't want the world to know. He sits on it for a year. Then in March of 2012, the NFL report drops. That's after the break. The bounty system was implemented over the years 2009 to 2011, but it wasn't until March of 2012 that it started to come to light. In March of 2012, the NFL publicly released their findings from a two-year investigation. They found that the Saints had been running a bounty program for three years, including in the lead-up to their Super Bowl win. The NFL reviewed 18,000 documents that they believed proved that Sean Payton had known about the program, but denied it to investigators and ignored NFL requests to put an end to it. It was very methodical. It was very calculated. It was very organized. It was a system that went all the way to the head coach. Soon after the NFL report came out, the filmmaker who sat in on the meeting with the Saints finally decided to release the recording to Yahoo Sports. Go get it. Well, the evidence was damning. The Saints had put bounties on the best quarterbacks, MVP winners, and Hall of Famers, including Brett Favre, Kurt Warner, Aaron Rodgers, and Cam Newton. In fact, Warner had retired soon after a brutal hit during a Saints game. I mean, some players, you know, just have an incentive bonus where if they play like, you know, 85% of the games, they got a bonus. You know, if these players are making whatever, $2 million a season, $1,000 to lay a hit on the opposing quarterback is jump change. I think supposedly what was happening with the Saints and perhaps elsewhere where Williams was coaching was they were rolling that money over so the bounties would get bigger and bigger. I think by the time they got into the playoffs and when they were chasing Brett Favre around and those guys were actually trying to reward them because if you got a $20,000 bounty on a quarterback, you know, that's, well, for them, probably not a new car. For, for like you and me, that's a new car. The big boss, the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, said that for three years, between 22 to 27 defensive players, coaches, agents, and it seemed like best friends, boyfriend, and everybody else created a pool for a slush fund to hurt star-opposing players for a pay-for-performance program. These payouts, they range from $100 for pinning a kick return inside the 20-yard line to $1,000 for cardoffs, and $1,500 to $2,000 for knocking a player out. So in the end, the players were paid to target other players, tackle by tackle. During that playoff game against the Vikings, well, there was over $50,000 in the bounty pool. For you and me, that's a lot of money. But these guys, they're playing on multi-million dollar contracts. So it makes you wonder, were they targeting other players for the money or just for sport? Because doing this kind of program was a direct violation of the players' collective bargaining agreement. As part of their contracts, they couldn't make non-league money on their games. Soon, the media had a hunch about who the whistleblower was. Former assistant coach Mike Cerullo. 
Remember, he's the guy who did a lot of the Williams grunt work in developing the Saints strategy. Well, he was fired for supposedly not showing up to the Super Bowl. After that, Cerullo hadn't been able to get another job with other NFL teams. Cerullo testified in the NFL hearings that he'd been the record keeper of the bounty program and that he felt prompted to speak out because he was angry that the Saints fired him. Not because they were trying to injure other players, but because you can't fire me. (laughs) He won the Super Bowl with him. He got a Super Bowl ring with him. And it wasn't until he got fired that all of a sudden this was a problem. But as soon as he got fired for what he, I'm sure he felt was the wrong reason, now all of a sudden, whoa, this Bounty Gate thing, you know, this is a problem. After the NFL report came out, so did the penalties. I mean, punishments, I guess. The team was fined $500,000. Greg Williams had already left the Saints, but was suspended indefinitely, though he was reinstated the following year. Some of the players were suspended as well. Football fans and even players took to the internet to express outrage, disbelief, or praise for how the NFL handled the scandal. There's too much money invested in the NFL. Especially with all the concussion talk of the past few years. And the Saints players were punished severely. Full years ridiculous. Yep. This had to be done. It had to be done. Coach Sean Payton took full responsibility for the program and publicly apologized. He was given a year suspension, the harshest suspension a coach had ever gotten in the league. For the next year, he wasn't allowed to speak to anyone on an NFL team without informing the NFL. So there were no friendly check-ins or even non-football conversations. He spent the year playing golf and coaching his son's football team. It was supposed to be more damaging potentially to his career, but in the end, it amounted to a one-year suspension, and then he was welcomed right back onto the New Orleans Saints as their head coach. At the end of the year, he came back to the Saints with an $8 million contract, the highest ever paid coach at the time. For most public figures, a scandal of this size would come to define them. It'd probably be the first sentence in their Wikipedia page. But for Coach Payton, it's just a blip. Peyton was right back as the head coach of the Saints because he won in the Super Bowl. Should have changed the culture in the NFL, and maybe it did. It's hard to say behind the scenes what exactly came out of Bounty Gate, but it's one of those things that a lot of people, you mention it to them, and they go, oh, oh yeah, I remember that. Despite Brian's hesitation to say anything changed with Bounty Gate, there has been some clear progress. There's a whole new set of rules associated with plays and positions to protect players. But still, accusations of bounties continue, and they still remain hard to prove conclusively. Most folks agree that football is a violent sport. It has a 100% injury rate. Players get concussions that lead to permanent damage. Most players only play for a few years, and sometimes injuries lead to retirement. There aren't a lot of other professions that lead hundreds of former employees to have brain damage. And for some of the players involved in this scandal, they took a hit of their own. Their careers were shorter. Some of them were initially suspended for almost an entire season, which, for a player with limited years on the field, is a huge deal. But Bounty Gate does make me wonder, does it have to be that violent? Or is it the drive to win and all the fame and money that comes from being a top team that pushes the game to dangerous limits. I mean, I grew up in the South, 
where football is a part of the cultural DNA. You're trained to be tough. You're trained to see the other team as your enemy and hard hits are celebrated. But underneath all of this focused aggression, it's supposed to be a general level of sportsmanship. You practice and practice to test your ability against your opponent for the week. The best athletes want to go against the best. But when you're trying to hurt your opponent is when this sense of fair play is taken away and is no longer fun. If you're a professional athlete, then it's your job to stay healthy. In the interest of money, livelihood, and a long career, it seems pretty foolish to me for something like Bounty Gate to exist because if everyone played like that, there'd be no game. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. But better, it's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. I've had people roll up on me, like early on in my comedy career, after they saw me perform, being like, I got a joke just like that. And I'm like, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, I'll never do that joke again. Once you say I have a joke like that, I'm never going to do it. And so that's why it's also really important for comics to record their sets. You need to have, like, evidence that you've been working on that joke. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Cheat is presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Kyra Asabe Bansu. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Megan Dietrich. The original idea for the show was developed by Tom Fuller. Mixing and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Special thanks to Grant Irving and Casey George. Special thanks to the Sony legal team. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Ikare Egbatola. <laughs>